Hi there, and welcome to the SpeechSM podcast. My name is Liam West. I'm a junior doctor in the Oxford Deanery, and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. You're tuning in today to listen to the expertise of Dr. Julian Perriard, a Canadian research scientist working at Aspatar in Doha. A former triathlete, Julian's research interests revolve around exercise under heat stress conditions and its effect on athletic performance. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Perriard. Thank you very much, Liam. I'm very happy to be here. To kick us off, can you explain what exactly is meant by the term heat illness? And heat illness itself is quite interesting because it can develop over um, a sort of continuum and it can start as relatively benign as exercise-associated muscle cramping and can develop towards heat syncope, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Now, heat cramps, um, without getting too much into the mechanisms of heat cramps, there's quite two kind of distinct mechanisms that have been proposed um, to cause heat cramps. One is the, uh, the kind of the muscle overload um, or premature muscle fatigue, um, heat cramp mechanism, whereby athletes exercise for an unusually long period or at an intensity that they're not accustomed to exercising, which can cause um, some sort of, uh, of muscle cramping. And uh, Dr. Martin Schwellness from South Africa has done quite a lot of research on that. Uh, on the other hand, it's associated a bit more with, uh, with heat stress itself and uh, athletes that are heavy, salty sweaters. So those, those that sweat quite profusely when exercising in the heat. And this one has to do with um, a great or significant loss of sodium uh, that's associated with um, that high sweat rate. So lots of sweat in the, uh, sorry, lots of sodium within the sweat. And Dr. Mike Bergeron from the U.S. has done quite a lot of work uh, on that. So those are kind of the mechanisms that have been proposed. But um, in terms of uh, heat syncope itself, that's more so related to, to postural hypotension when an athlete kind of collapses after crossing the finish line and, and blood pooling towards the, uh, towards the lower limbs. Um, and it's an important distinction can be made between athletes that cross the finish line and collapse uh, comparatively to those that don't quite make it to the finish line. So in terms of severity, those that don't cross the finish line and collapse, those are the ones that you really want to focus on in, um, in a race environment. Naturally, those that collapse afterwards, obviously, it's very important, um, but that's more so postural hypotension rather than maybe something happening in terms of, um, of a cardiac arrest or something of that nature. In terms of heat exhaustion, um, this is also an important um, kind of obviously a um, heat illness. However, it's more mild to moderate compared to heat stroke. And it's associated with an inability to maintain cardiac output and a core body temperature between 38.5 as well as uh, just under 40 degrees. And it's often accompanied by dehydration. Heat stroke, on the other hand, is the much more serious of all um, heat illnesses. Uh, it's associated with pronounced central nervous system dysfunction, uh, so agitation, delirium. Um, it can also be, um, <clears throat> excuse me, can also be uh, lead to coma in certain athletes, and it's also associated with severe hypothermia, so core temperature above or well above 40 degrees. Say I'm the physiotherapist about to take a group of long-distance runners from the England to a warm weather camp. What are the signs and symptoms of exertional heat stroke that we should be looking out for? Okay, well, especially heat stroke, as I mentioned, it's quite the, it's the most severe one. So heat stroke, you'll see that the subjects or the athletes, I should say, um, have pronounced central nervous system dysfunction. So they may have um, lethargy as well. They may start walking um, a bit with difficulty, a bit crookedly, and things of that nature. And um, Identifying heat stroke itself is quite important because, as you know, um, exercise-associated hyponatremia has 
um, symptoms and signs and symptoms are very close to those of heat stroke. But the difference is that um, athletes will have a lower core temperature. And one of the mechanisms or one of the ways, excuse me, that you can identify hyponatremia and you can differentiate it from heat stroke is by looking at uh, serum sodium concentration. So normally serum sodium concentration is between 135 to 145 millimoles per liter. So if it's below that, there's a good chance that the athletes are hyponatremic. Another method is by looking at core temperature. So if athletes are well above uh, core temperature of 40 degrees, um, that's a definite um, symptom that they have, uh, sorry, a sign that they have a heat stroke. It's the, uh, the central nervous system dysfunction that will identify the athlete that has, that has heat stroke and obviously the athlete that uh, may have collapsed. So now the listeners can diagnose the heat stroke. What are the best immediate treatment options for our long distance athlete? Well, the, the best option is actually to, to, cool the, to cool the athletes. Obviously, they'll have a higher core temperature or a core temperature higher than, than 40 degrees. So you want to get that core temperature um, immediately uh, under 39 degrees. And the best way to do that is through uh, a water bath. So obviously, cold water immersion, um, maybe having a bath water of 4 to, to 8 degrees to rapidly cool the individual. Even if it's uh, under 20 degrees, that would also help. Um, depending on the environment in which um, the medical team finds itself, they may not obviously have um, a cool bath or a cool water bath to, to, to cool down the athlete. So something like ice packs, um, wetting the individual with, with water, fanning is also very important um, because it helps to remove that convective layer of, of potential sweat around the individual and helps with convection as well. So it helps not only evaporation but uh, convective cooling. Obviously, administration of IV if the individual is not hyponatremic to help bring back uh, fluid balance and obviously trying to reestablish uh, central nervous function. So those are probably the main, the main, ways, to, to, or main ways to cool individuals and what to look for. So uh, to turn this on its head, do you think we may have been able to prevent this episode of heat stroke? Uh, certainly in certain individuals um, you may be able to prevent that. Uh, some individuals are predisposed to heat illness. So in, the, in those individuals especially, as well as all the athletes in general, um, there's two main things that probably they can do. One is to arrive uh, well hydrated to competition. There is debate as to the level of dehydration athletes can endure um, before they are, their, their performance is compromised. But one thing that does happen when um, dehydration occurs or when athletes arrive at competition dehydrated is that heat stress is exacerbated. So the development of thermal strain in terms of the rising core and skin temperature, that is exacerbated when athletes arrive dehydrated or hypohydrated and then dehydrate to um, a significant level during competition. Now, the level of hydration that athletes can maintain during competition is very um, subjective and variable. Naturally, during a high-level marathon, athletes can't stop at every water station and drink water because they're going to lose the front pack, for example. So we often see marathon runners, uh, the winners anyways, being the most dehydrated. So there may be some level of adaptation as well in those, in those individuals. But for amateur athletes, um, having a hydration regimen in mind and also basing that base, uh, their hydration regimen based on thirst are th things to, to consider. Probably the most important intervention someone can do before competing in the heat is to, uh, is to heat acclimatize. So when someone heat acclimatizes for a minimum of, of five to six days and up to uh, two weeks or even 20 days, 
they will see a decrease in their, their resting core temperature as well as their core temperature during exercise at a given intensity. Their sweating onset threshold uh, will begin earlier. Their sweat rate will increase. However, their sweat sodium concentration will decrease. So even though they sweat more, they can serve more electrolytes. Uh, skin temperature and skin blood flow will be reduced, which obviously helps with maintaining core temperature at a lower level. Fluid balance is also improved, so the thirst sensation is improved. So you start drinking probably a little bit earlier. Um, and in terms of cardiovascular stability, that is also improved. So not only will you have a lower core temperature, but you'll have a lower heart rate for a given exercise intensity. Stroke volume will be increased. Therefore, cardiac output, blood pressure, uh, blood pressure will be better uh, maintained. And there's also some adaptations that occur at the skeletal muscle metabolism. Um, so the main, probably the focus of, of um, improving performance in the heat should be placed on acclimatizing athletes before competing in the heat. Now, an important aspect with heat acclimatization is also ensuring which athletes may be more um, rapid responders and where other athletes may respond more slowly. So some athletes may have great benefits from heat acclimation in a week, where others may um, take a bit longer to develop their adaptations. So um, before a main competition, it's probably advised for the athletes and the coaching staff and the medical staff to do a kind of a mock heat acclimation camp six months or a year prior to competition to see how the athletes cope with uh, the whole heat acclimation regimen. There's different um, regimens that athletes can follow. One is um, being in the lab, which is considered acclimation or acclimatization, inducing adaptations in a natural environment. So if athletes in the lab are in the lab, they can exercise, for example, at a constant load or a constant running speed every day. However, as they adapt, that constant load or speed becomes less of a forcing function towards adaptation. So what they can do is um, exercise to a given core temperature and maintain that. So the intensity at which they'll have to exercise will increase as they adapt. Uh, or they can try and target a certain heart rate or, for example, a certain percentage of VO2 max and try to hold that, um, that heart rate. Therefore, the forcing function will be a constant throughout. As they adapt, they'll have to increase their power output, for example. Alternatively, like I said, acclimatization in the field is probably the best scenario to do because athletes are in the field, the intensity varies, and they get to feel um, and be in the environment in which they will compete. So those are kind of the, uh, the heat acclimation, acclimatization um, models that athletes and coaching staff can follow. So many of our listeners will help to organize or want to get involved with organizing athletic events where heat illness may occur. Does the literature have any recommendations for these event organizers? ACSM has recommendations based on WBGT, which is the Wet Bulb Globe Temperature Index. And this takes into consideration uh, not only environmental temperature, but also humidity, wind speed, and solar radiation. However, the environmental um, this is only an environmental heat stress index and does not necessarily represent uh, the heat strain that humans um, and athletes will, uh, will face during competition. And the heat strain that they will face in competition obviously has to do with the environment, but also the nature of the exercise, the length of the exercise, the breaks, for example, with, within uh, a given um, type of sport. So some 
uh, federations have come up with uh, with recommendations. Uh, for example, the ITF, International Tennis Federation, has rules and regulations for, for junior athletes, females, as well as male and female tennis players when the WBGT uh, arrives or gets to a certain level or surpasses that. Um, also, certain marathons um, in the northern latitudes have certain recommendations where an event has to be before a certain time or after a certain time. But again, the important part here is that not every set of recommendation can apply to every athlete. So even within a sport, you know, at the elite level, athletes are fitter. So even if they don't heat acclimatize, um, they'll have some of the benefits um, that are similar to heat acclimatization from regular training. So it's difficult to, to, to provide kind of blanket recommendations for all sports or even within a certain sport. Um, one thing event organizers can do, however, is try to implement countermeasures uh, to help uh, with the safety of the health and safety of the individuals, of the individuals. So, for example, they can try and, and tweak or alter uh, the start time of different events, and these can be based on, on weather patterns. Um, for example, if it's unseasonably warm at the start of summer, uh, maybe they can move the event to um, later in the evening or earlier in the morning, so that athletes that aren't heat acclimatized naturally with um, with the summer. Uh, won't be too affected by the unseasonably warm weather. Uh, they can also try to adapt the rules and refereeings to allow extra breaks or longer recovery periods. For example, we saw that at the 2008 Olympics with, uh, with football or soccer and uh, last year at the 2014 uh, FIFA World Cups. And obviously, developing and implementing um, medical response protocols as well as cooling facilities to be prepared for what can happen in the heat. Uh, another aspect is also making sure that ask at-risk populations, so individuals who have been sick, for example, leading up to an event, know that they may be at a higher risk of developing um, heat illness. Um, that also is something that event organizers can talk about or put in leaflets and packets and things like that to make sure that everyone that participates either at a high level or at the amateur level uh, is aware of the risk uh, of heat illness. You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Julian Perriard on exertional heat illness. Remember, you can read the April 2014 BGSM issue that is dedicated to heat stress and tennis performance. You can also follow the BGSM on our app, Google+, Facebook and Twitter via the handle at BGSM underscore BMJ. So that leads me to say, I hope you have a well hydrated, heat acclimatized and physically active day. 